there, this is River Anne, and this music puts a smile on my face. Welcome to another episode of Heart Sense, a podcast for aligning, strengthening, and opening our hearts to a frequency of love that heals ourselves and our planet. Thank you for being here. I love this arrangement from my guest today, Susan McDonald. You can find her music online by going to animalballets.com. I played this because I wanted to wake you up today. We're having an intense global conversation about music as a healing force of life. Susan is a concert guitarist, composer, writer, and the founder of Remember the River, which is a nonprofit organization that offers support to artists in isolated and conflict regions of the world through education, mentorship, and the donation of instruments. RememberTheRiver.org. Susan's musical journey has taken her all over the world, from community concerts, cancer centers, and Carnegie Hall, to the Amazon, Iraq, the border of Syria and Lebanon. So get ready to be inspired by her amazing journey. This is part two of the interview, where Susan discusses the healing effects of playing music for traumatized children in the United States and around the world. She also shares her introduction to working with talented classical guitarists in the war zones of ISIS, where music is forbidden. We begin with the children. So let's discriminate a little bit with the adult and the child. We see different things from young children, more curious about what's out there, how to have joy and fun. I know you've played music for villages with lots of children. Will you speak to our our listeners about the response with playing for children? The first and biggest, I mean, not the first time I'd ever played for kids, but I became involved with the young audiences of Houston. The first big concert that I gave from them was the Aquarium, a marine micro ballet for guitar and sea creatures. And it was my first animal ballet. It's, it's all kinds of little critters. And, um, but because the movie screen is so big, you'll see a tiny, tiny little crab and it looked just huge on screen. So these, these animals are real characters. So I was kind of nervous at the idea of playing for kids. It was going to be 250 pre-K through second graders. And they'll tell you what they think. I mean, they're not going to act like they like it if they don't. I mean, it, you cannot bluff your way with little kids, especially not 250 of them. And so <laughs> <laughs> I was really nervous because I'd never played this piece before. I'd never played for them before. And I started playing and their responses to what they saw and probably what they heard were so electric and so joyous and so connected and so excited. I mean, they would cheer for the little pom-pom crab. They would exclaim with excitement when they saw the shrimp. And it was just one of the most wonderful experiences of my entire life because it was so, they were so open to all experiences. And the, the energy of these little creatures, even though they were just on screen, the energy of their life force communicated with these little children so beautifully and in such a lively way. How was it different playing in other countries for children? It depends on the age of the children. That's a complicated question, actually, because I would have had a very, very different answer 
before the pandemic and before January 6th. I would have had a very different answer for you 10 years ago. The reason that I say this is so many of the places that I've traveled, there has been conflict or there has been deprivation. Here, now, there is more of that. And so I would say there is a greater universality for the children for whom I play. A case in point, I've played a lot of refugee camps in in the Middle East, and those kids have been through a lot. But I was back in Texas. I was down in Palacios, and it's a great community, and I go there every year and play. I get it again, the same little concert for different groups of kids. By this particular time, the second graders, I was in there with them, and an alarm went off, and they were having a live shooter drill. So they had to huddle in the darkness with the door locked, 22 minutes, not mm-hmm. making a sound. And there was one little girl who needed to cough, but she knew she mustn't. While these little bitty kids are huddling there in the darkness, grown men are coming through and pounding on the doors and saying, let me in, and hitting with flashlights. And the little kids are just huddled there. They know they're supposed to be quiet. So we got out of that. Okay, now the kids are just supposed to go back to class as if nothing had happened. Because the the adults knew it was a drill, you know. Before Uvalde, they took it much more lightly. Mm -hmm. But the little kids were paralyzed. And I recognized and I remembered where I'd seen this sort of a posture before. And it was in some of these little children who had fled to refugee camps, you know, fled from Syria from the Civil War, where many of them had actually seen their parents killed in front of them. It was trauma that these little kids were feeling. Words did really nothing. But when I started playing music for them, then they began to relax. It was the same thing in the refugee camp. I was with the little kids and gunfire went off. There was no place we could go. I mean, if it was ISIS, that was when ISIS was very strong in that region. There was nothing we were going to be able to do. And so I simply allowed the music to flow through me and the children allowed the music to flow through them. And that brought us all healing. And I never really learned what the gunfire was about, but I do believe on some spiritual level that the music did keep us safe because I think that, you know, quantum physics certainly shows us that energy affects energy, you know, that positive energy does have power. Lightness does have the strength to extinguish darkness. The opposite is not true. You can't quash light with darkness. But even a small light does have the power to Mm -hmm. destroy darkness. So now that children here in the United States are are more traumatized, especially with kids who are a little bit older, the little kids have always been very open. But there is a greater openness to the spirituality and the healing energy of music. There's not such a blasé attitude about that as as I would sometimes find, not always, but often before all of these difficulties happened in our culture. Wow, how revealing. Yes. I love that you brought up the point of light and music protecting you and the children. You know, the more fear-based we are, the more limited we are. Right. Presently, fear seems to have more currency. So it is it is the big monster that we have to overcome. Well, I mean, I understand it intimately. Some of my work that I did and, and some areas that were in conflict were terrifying for me. Susan, you've traveled and played in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. Well, the border of Syria, not actually in the country. 
Okay. You've seen the horrors of war with some of your students and things they've described and their emotional tension. Mm -hmm. And yet you move beyond your fear to be with them as if it was a divine assignment. Can you share with our listeners some stories about your experiences there and how that transformed your life as a musician? It was the greatest honor and adventure of my life. I was going through a really difficult time emotionally and didn't really know where to go from where I was. And I, was, I felt desperate and I felt very broken. So I put it out to the universe, opened myself completely, went into nature and put to the universe, what next? What do I do? And the answer came to me almost as clearly as if it had been spoken. It was a deep knowing Iraq. I thought, I must be overwrought. I'm being melodramatic. I had no experience with that part of the world. I'd been brought up to believe that that's a terrifying part of the, the world. It would never have occurred to me to go there. So I thought, okay, I've got to clear my mind, clear my soul, open myself, and really, let's do this right. Okay, universe. You know, ha, ah, sorry about my being melodramatic, but, but I really am surrendering. You know, what next? And again, the answer came back, Iraq. And several days later, I received an invitation to teach and perform in Iraq. That's being guided, isn't it? That's an answer. Not what I was expecting, but it was very, very, very clear. I mean, it really couldn't have been any clearer. So I went to northern Iraq, the Kurdistan region, in 2013, and it was just completely life-changing. My students were all young men, ages, you know, maybe 15 through 22, just the very people that I'd been taught to fear. And they were so sweet. They were all men. I was the only woman in the program, certainly in the guitar program, and the only teacher there at that time. They were so sweet. They were so innocent. They were so excited about the music. The organization's sort of unofficial motto was Art in Difficult Places. And so they would go and do these summer workshops for musicians there was often a brain drain in a country. Either the teachers had fled or maybe been killed in the wars. And so they just didn't have many opportunities or any opportunities to study with sort of Western classical musicians. And so that's why we were there. It was wonderful. And I was looking forward to going back the following year. I just couldn't wait to go back. Then we had to cancel because of ISIS. They had emerged and were sweeping through the region and killing people and kidnapping people. And it was just absolutely monstrous. I couldn't go back there, obviously, but I composed this piece of music in honor of the Kurdish fighting forces who were keeping ISIS at bay, posted it and got a lot of attention from Kurdistan and from Iraq, even a bit of attention from ISIS. And so I was not going to be able to go back to Iraq anytime soon. I moved my work to Lebanon. It was just absolutely beautiful, lovely people, very safe. And then a few days into it, I had word that I had some new students. These three men came in and looked to me much older than our students. They seemed to me middle-aged. And in my kind of paranoid view at the time, because I thought ISIS knows about me, they could easily come here and get me. I thought maybe these guys are from ISIS. Maybe they've been sent to take me hostage. And then they played. Music is forbidden by ISIS. You couldn't be a musician. It's forbidden. It's illegal. 
And so obviously these guys weren't from ISIS. They were beautiful, beautiful musicians. So they came into the program and the next day they started looking younger and the next day younger still. And then on the third day, they were kind of laughing and joking and saying, oh, the sky is blue. The birds are singing. And I said, oh, you know, is that what it's like in Syria? Because we were very, very close. And they laughed. They said, no, there the bombs kill all the birds and the skies are black. But here there is hope because they were immersed in music. They looked so much younger than when they'd first arrived that I looked at their passports and they were 22 years old. Coming from this war zone, they looked so much older. And after just a few days of playing music, they were boys. They were so young again. Over the subsequent years, I met many more people from Syria and spent a lot of time. And in fact, by the third year, almost my entire program was musicians who'd come across from Syria. And I was finally able to return to Iraq in 2017, three days after the liberation of Mosul from ISIS. It was maybe an hour away. And in fact, we could still see smoke from that direction. That must have been terrifying. What does ISIS do to musicians? Why is music forbidden? They don't consider it godly. They consider it a sin. Many things are forbidden in that rather twisted ideology. And so the penalty was likely public execution. Oh, my God. So these musicians, you know, really risked everything because in Syria, there were areas that were controlled. An ISIS checkpoint might spring up and they'd look through your phone. And if you were seen as being a musician, it wasn't going to go well for you. But to them, music was life. For me, of course, yes, it was terrifying because I knew journalists were being murdered by ISIS. And I knew, you know, for a a woman musician trying to teach young men this forbidden thing, I knew if I were caught, it wouldn't go well for me. There was this one moment in Lebanon where I was in the refugee camp, and it was far closer to the border with Syria than I, than any of us really knew it was going to be. It was not an organized situation after all, it turned out. When gunfire went off, I thought, you know, this really could be ISIS. They could have come across the border. And, and if they get me, I know how this is going to end. And it was been my greatest fear of what sort of an ending that would be for me. But I thought back to an interview that had been done with a friend of James Foley, who had been murdered by ISIS. And this friend knew Jim very well and talked about what he must have been thinking at the end. And knowing him, he would have been looking across the valley and thinking how beautiful it was. Mm. And so... Remembering that at this very terrifying moment and really feeling the soul of this person I'd never met, Jim Foley, I felt that his spirit was there. And I felt that I did surrender to the greatness around. You know, I did surrender to the universe, to spirit. And being kept safe, while it may not mean physically safe, it did mean spiritually safe. The soul is a bird. You know, the soul is not bound by earth. This great teacher who I'd never met gave me this great gift. I did have the courage to go back to Iraq in 2017. Got to know some musicians who'd actually lived in Mosul under ISIS, who had had the courage or recklessness or something to hide their instruments and and to keep that alive for themselves. So they're in desperate need of music. The healing energy of music. 
they're creating it. It's lived within them. Even during these dark times, they've got it. I mean, we're in need of their music. We're in need of what they have to offer. And I remember starting off, I was much more naive, you know, and back in 2013, this is before ISIS, but I remember thinking, oh, I'm bringing music to them. And that's balderdash, honestly. I was honored to work with their hands and work spiritually fresh enough to share with them my positive energy. But as things became difficult in our own country, they were renewed and shared with me their spiritual freshness. And so it's very much back and forth. It wasn't me bringing music to them. No, it was they were going through a difficult time. And at that moment, positive energy was moving through me in a way that I could share with them. How did you deal with their trauma when you were teaching them? One of the things that I did is I did videotapes for all of the students so that they could use these tapes maybe to apply for colleges or something to get them out of where they were in this impossible situation. The people that were in a safe environment played really well that day. You know, the videotapes went really well. It was great. The Syrians who were in the middle of civil war, who were brilliant players, kept kind of messing up. The stakes were really high. They needed to have these really good videos if we were going to have any chance of getting them out there. So I just cleared myself and let the spirit move through me and had this vision of when I was in the Amazon. And I was sitting by the river and felt all of these lives and spirits all around, both on this plane and on other planes. And it came to me that within all of us is a river. This river that I'd sat next to was still within me. And in these rivers within us is all the music we play, all all the music we've heard, everything we've loved, every beautiful sight, every beautiful sound, everything powerful and good and strong and of, of the spirit. And no matter what happens, this river is always flowing through us. There can be chaos on the outside and we may start to panic and, you know, try to climb up the banks, but... But if we can just remember to go within, into this river, we will be safe. This is what I was moved to communicate to them. And I knew in their case, you know, they were about to go back into a war zone. And I knew they weren't necessarily going to make it out alive. But this, no matter what happened, would keep them safe. So in the difficult circumstances I would find myself in as well, I would remember this river that is within me. This has become a really profound image, both for me and for all the students that I work with, and now for the little kids in Palacios, that there is so much more. And it is communicated through music, not exclusively, but that is a very profound way to quickly access this river within us. How powerful. I love those images. And you have an organization Yes. So if you visit the website, it's rememberthereriver.org. We were kind of the only organization at the time going into these areas through the arts. You know, you had some humanitarian organizations, but what we were doing was a little bit different. So I could see that there was a great need to even do a little bit more. And so one of the things that my organization would do is we would get musical instruments and get them to these refugee children and start programs and empower people who are on the ground there to do work. We started a little school in northern Iraq and got the instruments for it. And the greatest moment was when I was back in northern Iraq in 2017. 
the musicians who'd come over from Mosul, I was able to acquire instruments and send them back with them. They said there would have been many more musicians from there, but all the instruments had been destroyed and the musicians had been in hiding. And so we were able to get some instruments and send them back and just start to rebuild from the ashes. How magnificent. What beautiful gift. I still can't believe that I was the one that got to do this, you know, that I was called to do this. And I never would have come up with any of this stuff on my own. I wouldn't have even thought about it, much less been able to do it. It was such a strong, profound sense of the spirit moving through me and through the music, especially. I call that heart sense that told you to go to Iraq. You had to be listening to receive it. And you listened and you responded. And listening is half the battle. It is surrendering. And again, it gets back to humility. A wild animal is extremely humble in terms of it's recognizing all that is outside of itself to understand. And you could say, okay, maybe it's basic biology. Maybe it wants to understand if it has food or danger, but the perceptions of a wild animal are so alive, so aware. And in our culture, we are not those things because we're so self-centered that we can't even see what's out there. If we are filled with humility, we can hear those messages and receive those gifts. Absolutely. I think you've nailed it about humility. I've been talking about people trading in morality for entitlement. And that's part of the equation. But deeper than that is the humility. Kind of like what's behind anger is fear. Well, what's at the roots of the tree is humility and love, which join together in a beautiful orchestra. Well, humility and love and flight. And there we have our little teachers every day and the birds. You know, they teach us to fly. You don't have to have wings. You don't have to flap, you know, your arms and pretend they're wings. You fly through your openness, through your understanding that you will be caught on some current of air because you can't control it. You think you have it under control, then you get cancer. You think you have it under control, then you get, you know, trapped in a fire or an earthquake gets you or a tsunami. I mean, you just, you can't control it, sweet pea. I mean, you just... I can imagine, you know, Earth saying that to us, you know. I think that's the messaging that keeps coming in. If you're listening and waking up, then you're looking for other resources, other ways to live. This concludes part two of my interview with Susan McDonald. Our conversation continues in a later episode with more stories of her experiences giving hope to young musicians in Lebanon. I was very touched by this interview. I hope you've been too. I know very few women with Susan's kind of courage. In talking with her, I felt her passion came directly from her heart. So look for that third episode a little later. It's equally as powerful. Sponsor funding for today was provided by Sedona's New Day Spa and the Goldenstein Gallery of Sedona. 
Sedona's new day spa has been voted the best day spa for the past 14 years and provides an oasis of fabulous body treatments in a beautiful, serene setting with outdoor gardens, fountains, and a hot tub. They offer a unique menu of desert nature body treatments with over a dozen specialized massages from Swedish and deep tissue, aromatherapy, Reiki, Shiatsu, prenatal, and reflexology. For appointments, call 928-282-7502 or go to their website where you'll see their specials at SedonaNewDaySpa.com. The Goldenstein Gallery is located in the luxury resort of La Berge de Sedona and is celebrating their 21st anniversary. With over 50 noted local and regional artists in all styles and media, they feature changing exhibits, sculpture in the gardens, and consistently surprise collectors with the unexpected. For more information, visit their website, goldensteinart.com, or call 928-204-1765 for a personal tour. And finally, if you're resonating with HeartSense, please share this podcast with others. I welcome your thoughts, comments, and feedback. You may share them by sending an email to ourheartsense, the number two, at gmail.com. It's my hope that these episodes bring more light into your heart and more vision to your life. This is River Ann. Thank you for listening.